You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Associated with Baltimore's civil rights legacy. 
And what I'd like to do is uh, walk through a few of those in the next 15 minutes and really try to paint this picture. And, and we had civil rights um, uh, sites across the city, so it's not just any part of the city, it was really all over the city. But I'm gonna carve out one special area, and that's Upton's Marble Hill, um, uh, about a five, six, seven block area that beginning right after the Civil War, all the way up and through the 1960s, 1970s, including, I would have to say, uh, through today, you're gonna hear about the man who was carrying that civil rights torch, uh, but this little tiny community had, what's the boxing term, uh, punched beyond its weight. It had an oversized impact on the national civil rights movement. And I'm going to argue, maybe if you're a teacher or you, you feel inclined, you can grade me on whether I succeed in this argument. But I'm going to argue that in this community, in Baltimore, the civil rights movement didn't just happen. We, as Baltimoreans, laid the, the, the basis, the pillars, that the civil rights movement was founded on when we think of the 1950s and we think of the 1960s. The base for that came out of Baltimore, and not just out of Baltimore, out of the uh, Druid Hill Avenue, Upton, Marble Hill area. So with that, let me, um, let me walk through a few things. Here's, uh, here's our, uh, here's our um, uh, start with Frederick Douglass. Again, before the Civil War, so when we think of the Civil Rights Movement, a lot of people would think, you know, 1950s. Uh, this is before pre-Civil War, so 1850s. Uh, this is an image of Douglas uh, on uh, uh, sheet music. Uh, it was sheet music uh, to a song called The Path to Freedom. Um, and uh, uh, it was Douglas pointing northward. Um, not completely accurate. You can see he's not wearing shoes, and any of us who have studied even a little bit of history know that he escaped from his enslavement uh, on a train wearing a sailor's uniform that I presume included shoes. Uh, but it's a neat image. Uh, comes out of Boston in the 1850s. Um, but we're going to claim Douglas as one of our own. But here is the area. Let me see if this thing works. Um, if you see, here's Druid Hill Park. Um, and then I can't even read this. Let me, uh, um, uh, we got Penn North, Reservoir Hill, and then down here we've got Upton, oops, let me get back to the microphone, Upton Marble Hill, uh, just to orient where this hotbed of intellect and activism came from. And the first person, if I could wave my magic wand when you come home tonight uh, and you talk to your, your husband, your significant other, your brother on the phone, uh, if you can have three or four names that you maybe didn't know before, uh, in your head, this would be one. Um, Dr. Harvey Johnson, born enslaved in Virginia uh, before the Civil War, went on to get his minister's degree and moved to Baltimore uh, at Union Baptist Church. I won't say too much more because um, I think uh, Reverend Hathaway would talk about it. But at a time in the 1870s when, uh, when there were individuals who, as my Quaker grandmother would say, agitated, agitated for civil rights, they agitated for human rights, this gentleman out of Marble Hill had the idea that if we're going to have an impact, we meaning those of all colors uh, fighting for human rights, if we're going to have an impact, we need to organize. So the idea of a movement, you know, we call the civil rights movement the movement, the idea of taking individual actions and collecting them into a social machine, um, the early brainchild behind that was Dr. Harvey Johnson. Um, he founded an organization called the uh, Brotherhood of Liberty, um, and that predated the NAACP's founding in 1909 by something like 25 years. So a full generation 
before nationally we're organizing the NAACP. We have this gentleman here uh, recognizing that collective action was going to be the way to push the movement forward. So the whole idea of a movement, um, not alone in the world, but one of its strongest proponents nationally is Harvey Johnson out of, uh, out of West Baltimore. The Niagara Movement, uh, about a decade later, um, he helped, was one of the founders of the Niagara Movement, uh, beginning to be more national than just the Brotherhood of Liberty. Um, he, just, he and, uh, and several others, um, Niagara meaning the, the rushing waters of Niagara were gonna be so powerful that this movement could not be stopped. Um, uh, he helped form that national organization, again, ahead of the NAACP. So when the NAACP is founded, and then the Urban League a few years later, they pull their organizing ideas from, uh, from West Baltimore and Union Baptist Church. It's still there. Uh, the churches, because I'm, uh, we're Baltimore Heritage, we're all about saving historic places that matter. I'm going to try to show some places that matter uh, that are still there. Um, Union Baptist Church, uh, still there in Marble Hill, um, still going strong. Uh, and if you want uh, to, to just experience a beautiful building, uh, go there anytime. If you want to experience a beautiful building with beautiful people, go there on a Sunday uh, and, uh, and stay for their, their service. Um, w. Ashby Hawkins, another day to remember. Um, we got Harvey Johnson, major, major pillar of the civil rights movement. Um, Ashby Hawkins, has anybody heard of Ashby Hawkins? W. Ashby Hawkins. One of uh, the city and the state's first African American lawyers. Um, he enrolled after college in the University of Maryland Law School and then got kicked out in the 1890s. Why did he get kicked out? He was in and then he got kicked out. Did he do something bad? Did he flunk out? So, yes, sir. Plus, there was first, there was some court case that uh, said that whites and blacks couldn't. Uh... You're, you're on the exact right track. After the Civil War, during Reconstruction, um, a number, lots of institutions in the South, in particular, opened up to African Americans. Um, but as Jim Crow started to settle in in the 1880s and the 1890s, those same institutions reverted back to racist policies. So there was a few years where the University of Maryland was open to African-American men, um, and, then, uh, and then it shut its doors, and it took a whole lot of organizing and fighting to open them back up again. So one of the lessons from Ashley Hawkins is that this, this fight for civil rights is not a, a, a gradual, progressive curve. It's, it's a roller coaster. It's up and down, and it's sideways. So what did Ashley Hawkins do? Uh, he and his lawyer friend, uh, George McMacken, Streets in Baltimore. Uh, George McMacken uh, 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 had bought a house in, in uh, Marble Hill, uh, so just not too far from Union Baptist Church. Um, this was in the early 1900s, uh, and bought a house on a majority white block. A couple of years before, a city councilman uh, named West, I forget what his first name is, uh, Daniel, maybe, I forget his first name, but Councilman West adopted, got through city council, an ordinance that said, if a block is majority white owned, uh, African-American cannot buy on that block. And if a block is majority black owned, a white person can't buy on that block. It was an idea of keep the races separate. So McMackin purposely bought, talk about commitment, he purposely bought and brought his family to a white owned block to challenge that rule. So this was 1910, 1911, somewhere in there. Um, and he moves his family in where there's basically a hostile environment. 
to do something that was really uh, at the cutting edge at that time. Use the US Constitution and the court system to fight for civil rights. So again, maybe not the very first person, but on the very leading edge of using the court system to fight civil rights. So he, uh, Ashby Hawkins and McBecken, challenge this up through, uh, up through the Maryland Supreme Court, and they lose. They lose the case. Um, we're apparently in Maryland not ready for this. It so happens that uh, Louis, uh, um, uh, which city was it? Um, uh, Louisville. I'm sorry, I couldn't remember the city. Louisville looked at what was called Baltimore's West Ordinance, not the Council of the West, and said, hey, that's fantastic. We want to do that in Louisville, too. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so they did it in Louisville. And uh, the newly formed NAACP challenged Louisville's equivalent of Baltimore's ordinance, but they did it in federal court, not in state court. Ashley Hawkins um, joins on this newly formed organization called the NAACP, joins their legal team, and writes the amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court, in this case, Buchanan versus Wherley, and lo and behold, the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down the Louisville ordinance. So, uh, and then thus Baltimore has to abandon its own West ordinance. So even though if they're, even though they lost at the state, persevere, 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 find another angle. Um, Ashby Hawkins champions that uh, housing segregation uh, restriction all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and wins. Um, coming out maybe three blocks away from Union Baptist Church and Harvey Johnson. I better go faster. Sorry, Reverend. Here we go. <laughs> um, Harry Side Cummings. Who was Harry Side Cummings? Baltimore's first uh, African American city councilman. Um, he uh, he was city councilman in the 1890s, and I think he lost. He was again in the 1900s. Um, what did he do aside from uh, breaking that race uh, ceiling at the city council level? Each city council member at the time got what was called a councilmanic privilege to get one kid into MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art. Guess what color kid Cummings nominated? Yeah, an African-American kid. Never before had MICA had an African-American student. Um, they protested, he stood his grounds, and lo and behold, because of uh, uh, Harry Seth Cummings, uh, MICA uh, segregated and MICA became open. Unwillingly at first, uh, but it took uh, it took a legal fight at the city council uh, level to get that to happen. Um, so Cummings' legacy includes uh, uh, desegregating MICA uh, 50 years before Brown versus Board of Education, um, and also starting the Carver Vocational Institute. Um, and I'll say just one word about this: uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were very few opportunities for education for African American. Kids. The word vocational now, you know, it, it's kind of had a roller coaster of its own. It was really a great thing in a while, and, that, and then for a while it was kind of a pejorative term, vocational. Um, whatever, it, it's, whatever it's meaning today, uh, back in 1925, it was a major breakthrough to have a vocational school training African American youth just the same as vocational schools trained uh, white kids in Baltimore. Uh, major legacy of Harry. Seth Cummings, and his house is still here uh, in Marble Hill, um, uh, looking actually really great. All right, just a few more. Lily Carol Jackson, if you could, if I could pick two, which is like, which is your favorite children, but if I could pick two, um, uh, she would definitely be one of the two. Uh, Lily Jackson, we could have a whole talk on her. 
Um, but she was president of the NAACP's Baltimore branch from 1935 to 1970. So 35 years as president. She grew Baltimore's branch to be the nation's biggest, bigger than New York City, which had eight times our population, bigger than Chicago, bigger than Philadelphia, bigger than, than anywhere else in the country. Um, she, uh, she created, again, this legacy uh, of Harvey Johnson of a movement, tens of thousands, I think we're up to nearly 20,000 members in the Baltimore branch um, in the heyday. She also did a couple other really interesting things uh, with her, uh, with her daughter, um, she recognized that there was now uh, beginning to be movements, there were collective action and people, uh, people fighting for civil rights. Um, but she said, where are the youth? It's all these adults, where are the youth? So out of her brain comes this idea of engaging youth. And she and her daughter formed uh, the, the Citywide Youth Forum. I think I'm getting that wrong, the title wrong a little bit. Um, but together, they started to get uh, young people involved in, uh, in um, uh, uh, protesting segregated policies and fighting for human rights. So getting youth involved, and then number two, um, again, uh, one of the early people to realize that you could use economics as a tool, as a weapon in this war uh, for civil rights. Especially at first along Pennsylvania Avenue, she and her daughter launched the Buy Where You Can Work campaign. Uh, Pennsylvania Avenue had uh, largely white shop owners who would allow black people to come in and buy stuff because their money was just as green as everybody else's, but they would not allow African Americans to work in their shops. And so uh, uh, Ms. Jackson and her daughter um, staged protests outside with, with signs saying, um, shop where you can work. If they won't employ you, don't buy, don't spend your money there. Um, that idea got picked up in Chicago, it got picked up in St. Louis, it got picked up in Philadelphia as this way to, to protest using your dollars uh, to force social change. Um, so two incredibly powerful ideas, getting youth involved and protesting using economics, all coming out of Lily Carroll Jackson, um, her house here at the, uh, in Marble Hill right on uh, Utah Place. Again, four or five blocks away from all these other uh, uh, activists. Um, Greensboro, 1960, this is uh, one of the famous shots in AP Photographer. These are the, uh, the college kids at the Woolworth lunch counter protesting. Um, uh, uh, again, youth involved in using economics to protest uh, segregated policies. It's an idea that came out of Baltimore. Before Greensboro, there was Helena Hicks in Baltimore. Now, five years before, Dr. Hicks, let me show you this scene. Dr. Hicks was a student at Morgan College. That's what it was called at that time. And so in 1955, she and a group of students uh, were taking the bus to school. They were coming from South Baltimore, and they had to come up Howard Street and transfer buses at Howard and Lexington, Reed's Drugstore. Reed's Drugstore, this is a shot of the, um, uh, this is a shot of the lunch counter up here on the second floor of Reed's. Uh, and it was a cold January day in 1955. They were standing outside and they said, uh, waiting for the bus, and they said, let's go and have a coffee inside. So they went in to the segregated Reed's lunch counter, they sat down and they ordered coffee. And, and I feel privileged, uh, Dr. Hanks is still alive and uh, actually still feisty as ever, and I think off probably tonight protesting something else. Uh, but they sat down and the waitress came over and said, you can't be here. And she went back to the back. And they knew two things. They knew she was right. Reed's policy was no African Americans. 
And they knew that she was calling the police at the Pine Street police station that was four blocks away. So they figured they had about five minutes until something really bad happened. And one of the kids saw the bus come, and so they all ran out and got on the bus and went to campus. So there were no police dogs, no fire hoses, no uh, major tumult, but they did not go to class. They went to something called the Student Activity Center. And back then, there was a dean of student activities, and they said, Dean, you know what we did? We went to Reed's Drugstore, we went up in the Howard Wexington, we went to the second floor, and we ordered coffee, and we sat down. And he said, oh my God, you did it. And they said, yes, we did. And I said, oh no, what are we going to do? So they spent the rest of that day not going to class, but to calling all their friends and colleagues out of class, talking about what they had done. Again, youth using economic protest in a way to try to force uh, change. And out of that meeting came a, a, a collective a little pamphlet of writing, which was known as the Baltimore Pamphlet. And it was basically a blue book for how college students could do lunch counter sit-ins to protest uh, racist policies. So those Greensboro kids in 1960, they were fabulous and brave. They had also read the Baltimore pamphlet that was written five years before um, and kind of took it as their, uh, their marching orders. Uh, so when we were talking about sort of the first beginnings of civil rights, the civil rights movement, We've got Harvey Johnson advocating for collective action. We've got Lily Carroll Jackson advocating for youth and for economics. And then we have Alina Hicks putting that together in a lunch counter sit-in that became one of the sort of uh, iconic uh, staples for, for protests in the civil rights movement. All of that coming out of West Baltimore here not too many blocks away. Going to wrap it up with two more people. Fergan Marshall, uh, whose name hopefully everybody knows. Um, um, here is the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Uh, uh, he was obviously a lion uh, of his time. Um, uh, uh, one funny story is he went to Lincoln College. Uh, he ended up graduating from Baltimore City uh, primary schools and high schools. Went to Lincoln College, um, and one of his roommates was Cap Calloway, and one of his roommates was Langston Hughes. And uh, and Langston, and at that time at Lincoln, which was the HBCU, uh, historically black college and university, um, uh, at that time Lincoln was considered hiring its first white professor. And the students and teachers were split on whether to support hiring a white teacher, a white professor at HBCU or not. Um, Marshall was one of the student leaders uh, against hiring a teacher, and uh, and Langston Hughes was one of the student leaders for hiring a teacher. And Hughes later, uh, uh, in speaking about that, uh, and, and, and Marshall lost. The teacher was the teacher was tired. Um, one of the only times I think he lost any advocacy uh, efforts. The Langston Hughes said Marshall was uh, what was what were Hughes's words? He was rough and ready, loud and raw. That was Langston Hughes speaking of his good friend and college roommate, uh, Fergus Marshall. Um, but of course, Marshall goes on to do uh, unbelievable things. Uh, as a lawyer, challenging segregation and public transportation, um, uh, all the way up to the Brown versus Board of Education, um, desegregating uh, uh, public schools. Here is uh, the primary school, PS 103, where he attended his uh, public schooling um, in Marble Hill in West Baltimore, a block from Reverend Hathaway's church, two blocks from William Carroll Jackson's house. 
two blocks from uh, McMeckin Street and Druid Hill Avenue. So all this coming together, and you can almost see uh, these, these really smart people committed to a cause, eating dinner together, going to church together, like hanging out on a Saturday afternoon together, talking, 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 endless talking. How do we advance uh, what was then becoming the movement? Final person, Clarence Mitchell. Um, some of you were sort of getting into where I won't look at anybody in particular, but if you're of a certain age, you might actually know or uh, have known these folks. Um, but he was called the Lion of the Lobby, the 101st Senator. Um, uh, for He was a chief lobbyist. Marshall was the chief um, uh, lawyer for the NAACP, and his friend and neighbor, Clarence Mitchell, was the chief lobbyist for the NAACP. So not the local branch of the NAACP, but the national branch of the NAACP. Um, Mitchell, uh, to abbreviate a long career, uh, um, was sort of the spearhead for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and then the 1965 Voting Rights Act, that uh, the Civil Rights Act made it uh, federally illegal um, to discriminate based on race and gender and national origin. The Voting Rights Act made it a federal, federally a crime um, to do things like poll taxes and literacy tests. The state of Texas had a requirement that to run for office in the primary, you had to be white. So in order to, you know, like, there's the, you know, you couldn't that basically weeded out everybody who was not white. Um, the 1965 Voting Rights Act uh, did away with that. Um, and then the 1968 Fair Housing Act, um, which coupled, uh, coupled um, uh, the idea of human rights and civil rights with the right to housing. Um, let me end with this slide. Uh, this is a quote from Theodore McKeldin, who was a mayor uh, and a governor, um, one of the first white elected officials to embrace civil rights. And I like this quote because it talks about history, and I'm a historian, so I wanted to end with that. Um, but it shows a picture of a, of a sophomore at Digital, I think sophomore, at Digital Harbor High School. One of the things that we in Baltimore Heritage, through our research and through talks like this, um, we're trying to help uh, basically get uh, our own civil rights legacy on the map. Um, I am a firm, uh, firmly committed that you know, if you approach somebody, I don't know, say in Ohio, and said, where would you go to learn about civil rights? They'd say, Montgomery, Atlanta, Selma. I might take us a little while, but I want, in, in some definite short amount of time, that if you approach that person in Ohio and say, where, where would you go to learn about civil rights? They might still say Selma and Atlanta, but then also say Baltimore, because the ideas that made the civil rights movement possible all came out of Baltimore, all came out of that one little section of Baltimore. Um, and stay tuned, I think this guy um, uh, did a, a poster board presentation of uh, the neighborhood called Sharp Leiden Hall in South Baltimore, historically African-American community. Uh, but if we can plant the seeds in young people's minds, uh, like this young man, um, I think we've got a shot at really uh, fully celebrating our, our shared um, legacy so that when people say, Baltimore has a civil rights legacy second to none, they can say Thurgood Marshall and Frederick Douglass, but they can also say Harvey Johnson and, uh, and uh, 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 Clarence Mitchell and so many more. And with that, I'm going to shut up and say Reverend Hathaway. Let me do a, a brief introduction. Um, Reverend Hathaway is uh, the current minister at Union Baptist Church uh, in Marble Hill. Um, I think that he is cognizant of carrying the torch from Harvey Johnson down through a number of other activist ministers. 
um, and I think uh, very much has uh, filled the big shoes that have come before him. Um, and, uh, and I'm eager always to learn what's not just happened, past tense, uh, but what is unfolding uh, in this ongoing, ongoing movement. Thanks, Reverend Do you want which just, just the Union Baptist Church? Oh, in you, uh, why would you help that? <laughs> it's a place I have to know something about. <laughs> Let's go. That's That's okay. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> I want to thank my friend and brother John Hopkins for. Uh, I mean, he talks about he wants to listen to me. I'm always looking to listen to him. Uh, he is an amazing custodian of our history and an amazing narrator of African-American history of Baltimore City. I, I commend you for it, for the work that you do. Um, my name is Reverend Alvin C. Hathaway Singer. I'm the 10th pastor of Union Baptist Church. Uh, it is something that I pinch myself every day that I get up uh, because our church is located at 1219 Drew Hill Avenue, and I was born at 1211, Drew So I was born in the block of the church in which I serve. Uh, I'm old enough now that I don't mind telling my age. You know, you get to a certain point, you know. My wife, my wife since here, we've been married 37 years, so I mean, she knows everything about me, so I'm not, I'm not on the hunt, I'm not looking. So yeah, I was born in 1951. Now think about it, think about it, think about a church, a Union Baptist Church, it was founded in 1852. Many of you know Baltimore City was developed and founded and created in 1797. But then it was a part of a broader area, which was in effect Baltimore County. But it then drew its boundaries and incorporated as a city in 1851. So our church, people of my community, the people of my, my ancestors, really formed Union Baptist Church as a protest against white supremacy. It understood it. Anyone knows anything about Union Baptist, anything about Baltimore City, we were one of the areas that developed a idea called eugenics, which basically was saying that those persons who were born of uh, white uh, descendancy had a kind of a innate ability above and beyond any other. And so I chose to born out of that, and it's amazing. I found myself as a temple pastor, and you mentioned Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson. He was the fifth pastor. They put up his age, but what they did not say is that Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson served Union Baptist Church for 50 years. He served from 1872 to 1923. I studied Dr. Johnson. I studied his work. I did my doctoral dissertation on Dr. Johnson because he is an amazing figure. But I have to tell you one other thing because I'm trying to connect something because my predecessor was Reverend Vernon Dobson. Reverend Vernon Dobson, who by any stroke of imagination was the modern Martin Luther King of Baltimore City. He was a modern civil rights leader. He served for 40 years. He served from 1967 to 2007. I came to Union Baptist Church and I returned back to my home church in 2004. 
and became elected pastor in 2007. I followed Reverend Dawson. So here you had these two major civil rights figures, uh, Dr. Harvey Johnson. Uh, Jesse Jackson, Reverend Jesse Jackson was in town in, uh, I think, last month. Uh, it, yeah, around December, so yeah, it's September, excuse me, it's September. And in September, he said that Baltimore was the capital of the civil rights movement. And I did say, well, if Baltimore was the capital of the civil rights movement, Union Baptist Church is its state house. Um, everything that happened, that dealt with anything that related to the advancement of people of African descent, you find that its nexus, its trajectory, moves through Union Baptist Church. Um, I got a little, little piece here that, that was part of the sermon, and I kind of uh, will use it kind of just to make certain that I am orderly in my comments. Uh, I remember uh, Reverend Jackson coming to Union Baptist Church. I was young. Came and we had a we had in 1955 we created uh, what was called the Harvey Johnson Community Center and he came there and had to, at that time had a basketball court in there and he was playing basketball and he came to see Reverend Dobson and uh, Reverend Marion basketball well I get the thing in turn that's all right I talk about Ashby Hawkins too okay. um, Ashby Hawkins is one of uh, Harvey Johnson's closest friends. When he had his 50th celebration, he was the one who gave the keynote speech about uh, Dr. Harvey Johnson. But Reverend Jesse Jackson comes to, uh, to Baltimore. He comes to see uh, Reverend Dobson. He comes to see uh, Reverend Marion Baskin. Uh, he has in his mind this idea of Operation Bread Basket. Uh, he has it in his mind. He, he believes that there is some nexus between connecting the corporate community to the civil rights movement, but really didn't know how to do it. Uh, Reverend Dobson uh, and Marion Bastum took him to, at that time, Morton Lapides. Morton Lapides headed the uh, Coca-Cola bottling franchise in this area. And they ran an action on They ran action on And that action was that he had to contribute money to the cause, at that time, of funding Operation Bread Basket. The threat was, that Reverend Jesse Jackson was going to come out with his famous um, uh, 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 series of words, don't choke on coke. And that intimidated him, and therefore, out of that, uh, Reverend Jackson began to understand how you can approach the corporate community to get resources to help fund the civil rights movement. It really came out of that conversation and that learning and that training that came from Reverend Berman Dobson and uh, uh, Dr. Marion Baskin. Let me give my talk. One of the things that I would say to you is that the members of Union Baptist Church were always on the cutting edge of social change. They always had kind of uh, foresighted, visionary leaders. As I said to you, it was founded in 1852. But in 1863, oh, wait a minute, tell you about Baltimore City. Baltimore City basically was all vectored out from the poor. So basically, 
all of the communities, African American, uh, Lithuanian, uh, Colombians, uh, they all lived around the inner hall. Uh, Union Baptist Church was there at the, at the corner of Saratoga and what you now know as Calvert Street. Uh, that's where we were located at that time, uh, there in the 1800s. We moved to a couple places, but that's where we had our, our first church building. Uh, Harvey Johnson had his office at 2 East Saratoga. It was underneath uh, that building that sits right there on Saratoga and Charles. If you go there now, you find that it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a building that stretches out as an office. The interesting thing about it is they've always tried to locate something there. I went down there to beauty salon there, they had something, and nothing worked. And I tell them, I said, y'all don't know about the spirit of Harvey Johnson, you're not going to be able to put anything in that building unless it's blessed by Union Baptist Church. So, so I need to talk to the developer about that as to why that has not happened. But there we were founded in 1852. And can you imagine? Think about it. Emancipation Proclamation. Think about all of those things. Here in 1863, they said we need to have an institute of higher learning for people at that time who were colored. And they create a university, a college there on the campus. That college on the campus in 1863 becomes what you now know as Bowie State University. It then went to buy property and bought property in Princess Anne, the first uh, historic black college and university in the state of Maryland. Uh, it was two years ahead of what we know as Morgan State University. There was these church people believing that education was a passport, creating an institute of higher learning that is now Bowie State University. An amazing story. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I've, I've rekindled that relationship with Bowie State because they had in their public papers on their website, they were founded in a church in West Falls. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You weren't just some church. You were founded in Union Baptist Church. And they have that therefore claimed that as a part of their legacy. The amazing thing that happened was that um, uh, Harvey Johnson comes there in, 19, in, in 1872. Um, he comes there as a trained seminarian. Uh, he had gone to Wayland Seminary there in Washington, D.C. He was a trained uh, uh, theologian. Uh, if you think about it in the time when people uh, did not have uh, the benefit of higher education and etc., to have a trained theologian come to your church was part of wisdom on their part. They only had about 263 members at that time. And here you bring the Baltimore City, this amazing personality who was a trained theologian. Soon after he came there, he got married. He got married and really had to tell the story of his wife. His wife was a, uh, a Canadian African-American. Uh, her name was Amelia Johnson. They had what I would argue was the first teen ministry uh, in the country, uh, where his wife, who was a literary giant in her own right, uh, she wrote uh, some of the early uh, books of quoting, uh, Corinne, uh, she had a number of novels that she wrote trying to teach uh, uh, virtue and teach uh, uh, discipline, uh, published. Uh, she was the editor of the Baptist Voice. Uh, one of the things that <clears throat> gave really power to the movement in terms of Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson was that his wife was the editor of the Baptist Voice. 
the Baptist voices what connected all the Baptist churches in the country. And so here she was, the editor, and here her man was Reverend Dr. Bobby Johnson. So he literally had his own publicist right there in his home. And so, of course, all the kinds of actions and activities that occurred here uh, in Baltimore was able to be published across the country. Uh, he had a real keen sense because his contemporaries, he all knew. Uh, when you think of W.B. Du Bois, they were, that he was a contemporary of W.B. Du Bois. There are letters uh, that I have in some of my documents of communications between Harvey Johnson and W.B. Du Bois. Uh, there are communications between Harvey Johnson and, uh, and uh, Booker T. Washington, conversations with him. One of his close friends, one of his close friends, was Frederick Douglass. One of his other close friends, that little was Marcus Garvey. Uh, this Harvey Johnson was really, because of his wife and because of the work that he was doing, as you would think of Martin Luther King in this era of civil rights, Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson had the same prominence as civil rights in that era. He was known all across the country, the work that he was doing. He has, uh, he has four sisters uh, that's, uh, that's members of his church. Uh, they get on a steamship ride in, uh, in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. At that time, if you know, if you think about a port, uh, people used uh, not only rails, but they also used steamships uh, to, uh, to travel from port to port. Uh, they were there at uh, Norfolk. They got on a, uh, a steamship line. They bought a first-class ticket. This is about 1883. Bought a first-class ticket. And uh, the captain and the uh, attendants wouldn't seat them in first-class accommodations. They told them, you got to go down below and you have to sleep with the captain. Uh, if you go to the federal courthouse in uh, here in uh, Maryland, on the fourth floor, they have a display of that, uh, what that looked like, that, that, that berth that was below the uh, um, uh, a ship uh, where cattle were on one side, where the stink and the smell of that, and they had some temporary bunks that they wanted them to sleep in, and they refused. Uh, they stayed on the berth, they refused. They came and they told uh, Dr. Harvey Johnson. Dr. Harvey Johnson uh, enlisted uh, the, uh, the services of Archibald Sterling Jr. and they sued the Sioux Steamship Line. The amazing thing about Dr. Harvey Johnson was that when people were making basically uh, uh, $20 a month, uh, he was making as a pastor of the Union Baptist Church hundred dollars a month. So he was a person at that time with seemingly a means. But he would take his means and invest it in the movement. So when they went to take that case, the Sue Steamship case, uh, and that case made its way all the way to federal court. They won the case. But what Dr. Harvey Johnson did was he paid $145 to have an accurate stenographer transcript of that case. Can you imagine, I make $100 a month, and I take $145 to invest in a transcript so that it could be accurately told the issues related to that case. The case goes to the federal court, and they win it, but they win it in a limited way. 
But what Harvey Johnson did that I think is the genius of his mind was that in testing a law, he developed the legal precedent of test case strategy. That strategy, the legal precedence of test case strategy has been the lever of all of our civil rights events. Well, it talks about housing discrimination. You send in testers to test one person white, another person another color, uh, where it is uh, 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 ADA, and you send a person in a wheelchair to see if they have access. All of that was tested. The law and that legal precedent came out of the mind of Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson during 1883. 1885, he says, wait a minute, you know, I appreciate you, Archibald Sterling, but I need to go get an African-American uh, and get him admitted to the bar. Because at that time, there were no African-Americans admitted to the bar. And he went and got Edward Warren, a recent graduate of Howard Law School. He had tried earlier with another, they couldn't get him in, but went in 1885, got uh, Edward Warren uh, to uh, be admitted to the Maryland State Bar and paid the cost for that as well. In the same year, he founded uh, what uh, uh, Brother Hopkins described is the Brotherhood of Liberty. It actually was called the Mutual United Brotherhood of Liberty. And it had as its mission statement to use the Constitution and its rights for fully engaging and ensuring that people who were colored benefited from the rights that it was described in the Constitution. They sued everybody everywhere. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing how they began to be strategic around suing. And so when you talked about uh, Ashley Hawkins and you talked about McMechan and you talked about the law that was uh, enacted in 1911, uh, they pursued a legal strategy that took that all the way as it was described to the Supreme Court. There was an issue, there was an issue uh, during the uh, during the early, late 1800s, there would be people from, uh, from the city of Baltimore that literally almost like, like bondage, almost like slavery. They would pick them up down at the port, uh, at Pratt Street, etc., take them on a ship, take them to an island down in Nassau. Uh, and there, they would harvest pigeon dung. Pigeon dung was a valuable commodity. And on this particular island, it seemed like every pigeon in the world would just have his droppings right there. And they would sit there, they would bring them from Baltimore, literally lead them there to harvest pigeon dung. And you can imagine, they didn't pay them much, they would, they would, they would, uh, they would uh, take advantage of them. And then on one occasion, uh, some of it, as the story is told, that some of the men rebelled. And in that rebellion, one of the overseers who were white was killed. And they immediately wanted to charge them with murder. And murder at that time was being hanged. They would hang you if you were convicted of murder. They brought these men there, marched them down uh, Pratt Street with shackles. It was big news everywhere. And Dr. Harvey Johnson then had the Mutual United Brother of Liberty uh, and his lawyers uh, then uh, didn't sue. Uh, they didn't win. They, uh, they were found guilty. And they were sentenced to be hung. The boldness of Dr. Harvey Johnson was such that there was a president, U.S. president at that time, Benjamin Harrison, 
And he, because he had a relationship with Walter Brooks, Reverend Walter Brooks, Reverend Walter Brooks was the pastor of 19th Street Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., uh, and uh, served almost for a similar amount of time. That was one of his colleagues and partners. Uh, he was able to get an audience with the President of the United States, Benjamin Harrison. And they were able, I, 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 every time I think about this, can you imagine having the goal as a pastor of Union Baptist Church and you would literally go to Donald Trump and say, let my people go. I mean, I, I, that, that to me is astounding the thing that he had that kind of holy boldness that he would go to Benjamin Harrison and was able to get the sentence community. They were not home. He couldn't get them free, but they were not home. That is the kind of boldness of Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson. Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson uh, realized that education, as I said, was a passport and a key. And so uh, because of Henry uh, Harry Collins, they were able to get a bill passed through the city council. Uh, at that time, Mayor Patrol didn't want it and didn't, didn't want to have it, but was able to get what we now know as a colored high school which became, as you know, Douglas. And they got that high school, got the money, fought with the troll, fought with the city council, and against the troll's best wishes, when they had the first graduating class, they made the mayor come there and hand out the diploma. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of insistency, that kind of collective power. Uh, just a little footnote about what gave uh, Dr. Harvey Johnson, and amazing because as he served, uh, the, the population in Baltimore City during that time, African American population, was about 45,000 persons. Uh, he had a membership of his church uh, of uh, a little better than 3,000 persons. So literally 8% of the African American population were members of the Union Baptist Church. That's what gave him the clout. Baltimore City has a great fire. Great fire in 1904. And I'll, I'll wind it down and I'll, I'll come to a close. It has a great fire in 1904. The church that I tell you about that was down around Saratoga and Lexington, it did not burn, but much of all of Baltimore City burned. And all of Baltimore City was condemned. When you look at, uh, uh, you look at uh, Mercy Hospital, you look at the Preston Gardens, all that, that's where African Americans lived at that time. They, 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 they condemned all of Baltimore City. And they, forced all the African-Americans that were downtown to come to what we now know as the historic West Baltimore. And then, so they came, and Reverend Johnson came, bought property at uh, 1219 Little Avenue, and in 1905, built Union Baptist Church. I commend you. Uh, it is one of the most marvels uh, of our city. Uh, if you've not been there, if you've not seen it, I would ask that you come and see it. He was able to get one of the most amazing architects of that time, William Beardsley Jr., uh, who designed it. William Beardsley was from uh, Connecticut. He had designed in Boston, designed in New York. He came to Baltimore looking for government-related business. In some kind of way, they contracted with him to design the zero lot 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 line Gothic cathedral. Uh, he also was able to get one of the foremost stained glass makers of that time, uh, John Lafarge. John Lafarge was a contemporary of Louis Tiffany. 
It is said that Lewis Tiffany learned the outland stained glass technique from John Lafarge. And we have one of the largest collections of John Lafarge windows, probably in the East Coast, probably in the country. Uh, and so we have these John Lafarge stained glass windows. We have a church that was designed by William Beersley Jr. And they did it all in a cash. $54,000, they paid cash for that church. The amazing thing about Union Baptist Church is that it has always been a paid-for church. It has never had a mortgage. Can you imagine from 1905 until this time that the people that uh, inhabit that place have inherited that legacy and history of Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson? Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson, as I said, was a colleague of uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh, when he launched the Reach United Brotherhood of Liberty, he had Frederick Douglass come here. Uh, as its key spokesman. Uh, that, that organization, as, as was told to you, became the prototype for the United Movement, which became the prototype for the NAACP, largely because W.B. Du Bois looked at what uh, uh, Harvey Johnson was doing in Baltimore and said, we need to do that on a national level. Uh, it is said that uh, 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 W.B. Du Bois and Harvey Johnson kind of had a little falling out because W.B. Du Bois had a beef with Booker T. Washington. But Booker T. Washington was Harvey Johnson's friend, just like W. B. Was, was his friend. And he was saying, hey, man, can't we all get along? Can't we all literally work together? And when, if there's one thing that he was not able to do, he was not able to bring those two together, because when you think about it, it's a both-and strategy. It's a strategy where you become industrious and you learn the skills related to your hand, carpentry and plumbing and those kind of skills. But also, you need to have those kind of high-level thinking critical skills that are found in higher education. It is not either or, it is both and. And he was never able to get them to agree on both and strategy. But one of the things I would say to you is that W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, love and, and, uh, and respect for Harvey Johnson was such that when he left uh, the Crisis Magazine, he came to Baltimore. And he came to Baltimore to be really right across the street from Union Baptist Church where he stayed, and out of that came the uh, Du Bois Circle uh, that is uh, going strong even to this day. One thing I would say about Dr. Bobby Johnson, he sued, uh, and I'll give you one, 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 one other thing. Many of you know, can, do you know the difference between an alley and a street? Well, an alley will have an indentation in the middle of the, the, uh, the uh, uh, pavement, not the pavement, middle of the middle of, uh, of the roadway for which water would run down. A street would have, would have uh, 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 you know, drainage, right? Well, during that, during that time of the uh, 1800s uh, and the 1890s, uh, people who were of African descent basically lived in alleys, right? Right behind our church is Stoddard Street. It was then known as Stoddard Alley. One of the things that Dr. Harvey Johnson said was that people of color do not live in alleys. They live on streets. And he sued. And every alley at that time is now a street because he sued because he said that people of color do not live in alleys. They live on streets. Uh, even though the drainage is still the same, <laughs> but the name is definitely different. Uh, he became frustrated. He had done all kinds of suits. He had, he had, he had been winning, uh, but
it seems as if America uh, did not really want people of color to be fully integrated into the affairs of our country. Uh, he became, at his later years, uh, he became, and he kind of got, got categorized kind of as a kind of a segregationist, which is not the case. Uh, he just said, wait a minute, we've done everything. We, we, have, we have educated ourselves, we have trained ourselves, we have saved money, we have been industrious. We, we have a constitution that allows us to full liberty and if it's fully exercised, we could be free citizens in America. And he became frustrated. And what he did was he created, and I'll kind of close with this, he created what was then known as the Texas Purchase Movement. In my files, I have an original uh, constitution. The Texas Purchase Movement, and this was his premise. He said, if you don't want us, if you don't want people of color to be integrated fully into the United States of America, sell us Texas. <laughs> and we're going to go on to Texas and run our own affairs. Don't have to be bothered with you. You don't have to be bothered with us. He even had a financing strategy where it would be paid for in 100 years. And I look at that, and I look at that document, and I get that constitution, and I said, how marvelous, how brilliant was this man is. And here I am. I'm the temple pastor of Union Baptist Church. If he had succeeded, I would be the governor of Texas. <laughs> Children, I took my children to Washington, D.C. 
kind of proud of the kind of legacy, kind of work, kind of the learning, kind of training that I had. And I showed them there on the National Mall. See that merry-go-round right there? That merry-go-round is the merry-go-round that I rode as a child there in Willow Park. It is now on the National Mall as a testimony to the struggle of people who realize that the struggle continues and the work goes on. Vernon Dobson were cut from the same cloth because he understood something as we, as we came through the riots of 1968, that this is the time for people who are African American to get political power. One of the things that they had to do was that the, that the governor appointed the judges, and the judges that then would be on the circuit court, and then the judges would have to go for election after the appointment at the next election time. And then when they passed that election, they would get a 15-year term. And because the government would never appoint African-Americans to the court, we didn't get any African-Americans on the court. And so in 1968, they ran Joe Howard for the circuit court, and they won. Joe Howard was then admitted to the, eventually uh, won the election. The camp, nine candidates that they had, one, one had the lowest vote, so Joe Howard goes on to the bench. At the same time, they ran uh, Perry Mitchell for Congress. Sam Fidel was the congressman, the Jewish congressman, the love brother from the Jewish community, uh, but he was the congressman. In 68, they ran Perry Mitchell uh, against uh, Sam Fidel, and they lost. Uh, one of the amazing political minds, and his name is not known, his name not told, but it was a gentleman whose name was Dr. Alvin Augustus Adair. Dr. Alvin Augustus Adair was a contemporary of Martin Luther King knew the family, knew all the movement. Uh, Dr. Alvin Gustafs Adair was the president of faculty senate at Morgan State, now University. Uh, he was a political science, he had a doctorate in political science, and he was the campaign manager for Perrin Mitchell, member of our church, sang in our choir, Dr. Homer Faber, who ran the urban affairs uh, at Morgan State University, member of our church, participant in our church, all of the kind of leadership I'm growing up now, and I'm coming to maturity, I'm seeing these amazing people who, are, who have a religious moral compass for the social conscious. We come back in 1970, they ran Perry Mitchell. Perry Mitchell wins. Perry goes, and there are just 13 other congressmen there in the Congress. Amazing names. Shirley Chisholm, Ben Deeds out of Chicago, amazing, amazing, amazing people. But they had not been organized. And there goes Gus Adair. And Gus Adair goes and he organizes what we now know as the Congressional Black Caucus. He became his first executive secretary. And aimed those amazing 13 personalities that they were able to do so much. And I wonder now, we got so many there now, we do so little. Uh, when you think about the SBA, you think about the set-aside program, Parliamentary Champion, created more wealth, created more millionaires, created more people and moved people into the middle class because of that legislation. Uh, they were amazing people. They called them the goon squad. But they understood something. They understood that you could walk with people but you had to be, be able to talk truth to power. And they did it. And so here I come, little young guy, uh, born out of a family of uh, religious people, 
born out of a family where my uncles were, were ministers. Uh, uncle was a minister in North Carolina. Another uncle who was really a rapper, almost like, like Harvey Johnson and like uh, Bernard Dobson, uh, he was there in uh, North Carolina. So active in the NAACP, they burn a cross on his, uh, on his front lawn. He takes his family out of fear, moves to Richmond, Virginia. Uh, my uncle Wallace, Uncle John Wallace, uh, goes to Greater Baptist Church. And now, in the, um, in the 80s, uh, 70, excuse me, 70s, I'm talking about 74, 76, and I'm close. I can talk all day, he's right. <laughs> they gerrymander in Richmond, Armico County to dilute the vote of African Americans there in 1974 or towards 1976. And what he did was they had sued, and they win the jury <coughs> and they had the lines rejoined back so that Richmond became Richmond proper. What they then did was they then ran their own candidates for office. They ran Willie Dell, who was a, a school teacher, who was, was a school teacher friend of my, my uh, aunt. Uh, he ran his lawyer, uh, his personal lawyer, Doug Wilder, to the state senate. And the story is now known. Doug Wilder went to the state senate. Doug Wilder becomes later the governor of Richmond, Virginia. I mean, the governor of Virginia. The folks hear about my work down there with my uncle, and they call me back. They call me back there, and, uh, and so in 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, I'm a part of organizing what you now know as Baldwin Wants United Leadership Development Build. That was the outgrowth of how do we codify our struggle and how do we codify civic engagement and how do we create organizations that have longevity and sustainability. And now when you look at it now after 40 years, uh, a build has been uh, probably one of the most successful citizens' organizations in the country. Uh, Amazing things, created new laws near my house, created uh, a living wage, created all these amazing things all out of Baltimore. But I go back to the amazing mind of Dr. Harvey Johnson, who believed that people committed to the cause, people with intellectual capacity, people with determination and persistency and insistency can change the direction of society. And I'm here to tell you that they were successful. But they leave to us an awesome responsibility. We can change our city. We can change our country if we just believe in our own capacity to do good. It's about time to go. A lot of time you have. Do you want to take a question or two, or do we want to? Uh, I'm looking at our hostess over here from the library. We had time for a few questions. So I saw Ken in front. Okay. Let me let me grab the Um. Let me just grab that little. There's another microphone up here. Another. Okay. All right. Yeah, don't jump, don't jump. Uh, I see somebody jumping. That don't work. Uh, I'm not saying that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I have a question yeah. for it. <laughs> I told you how I was. I had a question for uh, Reverend Hathaway. I wanted to know what it was like uh, growing up on Jordan Hill Avenue and how different it is today. And were you aware of, as you 
those other figures certainly probably knew the Mitchells um, and maybe even knew the third degree marshal, but were you aware of the, the civil rights activism when you were growing up? There's one thing that, that really is a challenge in our time, is that uh, our public schools have really abandoned true education. When we were going to school, we knew Baltimore. Uh, I, had the, I had the opportunity to have an amazing gentleman that was my social studies teacher. His name was Dr. Samuel Banks. Dr. Samuel Banks was later to become the uh, the president of the uh, Association for the Study of Negro Life and founded by Carter Wilson. Uh, he was my uh, social studies teacher from seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. I went to the city and he continued on there, tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade. Little footnote to that. Elijah Cummings was my classmate, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade. Dr. Samuel Bikes made certain that we understood who we were. And, 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 and there's a challenge of our day is that we have students going through school. One of the biggest arguments I had with, uh, with uh, uh, Alonzo, Dr. Alonzo, was that he started wiping off the names of historic figures that were of African descent and gave names that made no sense. How could you destroy Diggs Johnson? Diggs, Harvey Johnson, and make it Southwest Texas. Yes. So when you learn who you are when you go to school, when we went to school, we knew who we were. We learned who we were. And so when I grew up in the Georgia block of Little Avenue, uh, right in the next block where we were, the Mitchells. The Mitchells had a series of sons. Their youngest son was George. George was my kid. We'd be playing right out front. He'd come to his father walking down. He was on cars. He'd pass on the head. It just come from the it just come from the Benjamin Station, walking down, going. I mean, this was the community. On the corner where our head start building is, there was the Penn Hughes Piano Company. When I got up in the morning, I looked up, there was a brand piano with a, a two side. I mean, so you had to go play the piano because you saw it every day. On the other corner from there was the law office of, of uh, one of the I mean, so when you think about the block in which I grew up, you had a hotel right across the street. You had you had Iceman teachers, you had you had lawyers, you had all of these people were there. And now when I look at it now, I am really, I what you call righteous indignation as to how the city has treated West Baltimore and how it has left it almost abandoned with disinvestment and how it allowed it to uh, to uh, uh, take wonderful grand housing and make multiple units out of it, violating all kinds of codes and whatnot. So I'm kind of frustrated and I'm kind of mad. Uh, and, and my anger will be uh, seen and felt uh, because the same spirit, the same trough that uh, I feed from was the same trough that Dr. Johnson and Vernon Johnson fed from as well. Well, have a question. What happened to the Reeds situation? <laughs> what happened to the Reeds situation? What <laughs> Um, we are a developer out of New York that wanted to tear the whole lot down, including Reeds. Um, I will, I voted for all our heritage. We put up fuss, including a really low, low tactic of getting borrowing school kids out. Uh, I see that television out to protest the demolition. 
Um, we were able to solve it. Uh, two lawsuits, I think we're following some of success. A couple of lawsuits, a lot of protests later, um, maybe uh, financial difficulties for the million dollar made up. Um, they left. Reeds is now uh, still vacant along with most of the other blocks, what was called the super block. Uh, but the city is actively uh, has requests for proposals out as entertaining offers. Um, we're hopeful that something good will come. It's got a roof on it now, so it's stable, it's not going anywhere. Um, I am hopeful that it will be put to good use. I don't think it should go back to a resource store. I don't think there are resource stores. But I do think whenever we're going to tell that at anniversary points of the civil rights movement, Reeds has got to be the chapter cover, if not the book cover, for one of those chapters. The question was when did it become integrated? How did it become integrated? Oh, 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 oh I'm sorry. Oh, the oh, story here, you know. I, I jumped ahead of my 50 years. Um, yeah, so Reeds uh, was protested in 1955. Um, the block that was on was full of five and nine. So there was a Woolworth, there was a Schulte United. Um, some of those had already uh, broken down their color bar, but not all. About a month after Reeds, uh, 1955, Morgan students and Goucher students started protesting up the Reeds next to the Morgan State campus. And within about a year after that, Reeds decided decided that it would uh, what they call lower the color bar. Um, and so it, it worked, it wasn't immediate, but, uh, but it did lead to, to the desegregation. That didn't, uh, on that block, you know, there was, there was a hex, and there was a host of cone, and there was a Stewart's. And so the story of Baltimore's desegregation, which I think mirrors many other cities, it wasn't like an even sweep, you know, like we protested and they all, you know, desegregated. It was messy. And this store did it, and this store didn't, and this store held out, and this store. Um, and so uh, the drill five and nine was segregated long before the upper end department stores in that Lexington corridor did. If we could close with two more questions, this gentleman has hand up and the woman in the back her hand, and then we'll, yeah. Thanks. Uh, can you just speak a little bit about how um, like a critical mass that was formed uh, was allowed all these uh, creative minds and creative approaches to uh, fight segregation? Uh, I mean, just to put it bluntly, wasn't that because of the pioneering racist policies that existed here in Baltimore and the state of Maryland forcing blacks into a, a corner almost where they had to fight like crazy in order to you know, fight the oppression. Uh, and then fast forward to today, you know, this crisis that Fox 45 causes, you know, ripping the city, is that not the result of, despite all this fight against oppression, uh, you know, we just have not been able to, uh, you know, reverse the forces that created, you know, these Marvel ghettos, you know, the red line keeping us trapped. You know, in, you know, many of us cycles of poverty. Uh, just can you comment? I want to put it down. I, I, I shouldn't do this when I, when I was speaking. I mentioned to you that uh, that Union uh, Baptist Church uh, there in the uh, 1890s was, I would suggest to you, was the first African American mega church in Baltimore City. Eight percent of the African American population went out to Union Baptist Church. 
But what Reverend Harvey Johnson understood was that instead of continuing to grow larger, he began to see other churches. So out of Union Baptist Church came Trinity Baptist Church. Out of Union Baptist Church came Perfect uh, 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 Square Baptist Church. Out of that uh, came, uh, came the church back there, Fred, uh, Fremont and Lafayette, uh, Macedonia. There were 13 churches that came out of Union Baptist Church that were strategically located all throughout West Baltimore. Out of that, they began to do commerce. Uh, see, my, my sister here with the uh, Afro. Prior to the Afro was the uh, Baltimore Ledger. Uh, they had that newspaper called Murphy that bought it, came Afro. They ran newspapers, they had stalls, they had businesses. Uh, it was a self-contained community, and it was a community that was very rich. Uh, in terms of culture, in terms of its own capacity, uh, building schools and more and all of that. I think one of the things that I'll just comment on with you about politics, but I think you understand the dynamic. I think that there has been a strategic, intentional uh, 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 thrust to gut the political power that was in West Baltimore. Intentional. Uh, Anybody that knows politics? The reason why the reason why Herm Mitchell won the, in 1970 was that when they counted all the ballots, what's following always is the last ballot to be counted. I was there actually on front of town road in the in the box. They roll up the roll up the box, put the tape around the shirts, and they take it down and count it. What's following was always the last to get counted. But best following was the tipping point. And if you think about it, they have depopulated what's called the war. They have basically gutted its political power. It is amazing to me to think that the seat of Harry S. Cummings and the seat of the Mitchells, and I love this brother, is from a brother from New York, Eric Costello. I mean, how did that happen? Love him, man, but how did that happen? There's this intentionality of gutting political power from the African So um, I know I'm being late, but I'd like to come in and hear you know, what I actually could hear. So um, my mom was a teacher in Baltimore City Schools for 40 years. So my question is, um, I'm learning. I am 50 years old, and I am just now learning the name of the book that you're talking about. And what I want to know, we, we know about the Mitchells, we know about the Marcus, we know these names, but what has happened? with the Baltimore City School Board about us, you know, hearing and getting these names known in the schools. Social studies teachers, you know. My mother was writing curriculum um, in the 90s and they were talking about multiculturalism, you know. So, and putting these units in multiple, you know, not just in history classes, but she taught English and reading skills. What is going on with the Baltimore City School Board about making sure that our children know these facts. Before I turn that over to you, can I say one more? Uh, I would encourage you to talk to a woman named Iris Barnes, who is the executive director of the Lily Carroll Jackson Civil Rights Museum that's in Ms. Jackson's former house on Utah Place. She just got a grant, I forget, it's a big grant uh, from the National Foundation, um, has hired a, uh, for three years a staff person to develop a civil rights curriculum to insert into the city school 
curriculum. And I'm not versed in the, the terminology of how that works, but you know, you have to, you know, different modules and you know whatever. So the idea is not just like we've got a great website, but also it's a rights history, but it's hard to take that and get it into the school system, and that's what uh, I was part of trying to do um, at some level. So go go back to your contact information. Talk to the leader of Jackson Museum folks. Um, uh, and then we'll turn that over. <laughs> I, I just say something that gave me a trouble. Uh, as I mentioned, Dr. Samuel Banks wrote a real curriculum for social studies. Uh, and the school mother and the powers that be fought and wasn't able to get it integrated in the school system. When we created the Reginald Lewis Museum, we were going to have that integrated into the school so that every school child would go to that. We fought you know, now this part time, for some reason, and I, and I, I can't understand why you don't want to have young people. See, if you don't know who you are and whose you are, then whatever you do doesn't matter. And so our young people are going through our schools, they going to Booker T. Washington, they're going to Frederick Douglass, they're going to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, What's one of these small ones? Dr. Umar. They go into the Francis M. Woods. They go into Francis M. Woods was the first colored superintendent. He was a member of the Union Baptist Church. All the school teachers would come to the Union Baptist Church because they wanted to connect with Francis M. Woods to get a job. You know, so so you got you got these amazing personalities that we have names uh, on the schools, but people don't know anything about. You know, and, 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 I, and I really, when, when we got this school national system that basically says that you have to test to, uh, you have to teach to a test and not teach a culture, not teach experience, uh, well, I think we all settle that. Thank you so much, Reverend Hathaway and John Hawkins. All right, thanks everyone. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.